lights on. Okay. So I'm a little nervous, but uh, when I meet God is strong, right? So, um, so I'll just get at it here. So when I was a kid, peer pressure came in many forms. I'm sure none of you guys can relate to that. Um, so some of those forms were like, I dare you. Or everybody is wearing that, or doing that, or listening to that, or whatever. Um, so-and-so likes you. You should really go out with him. Or don't tell. Or my favorite was that I'm not going to invite you to my birthday party. <laughs> really grown up, right? So I kind of thought as a kid growing up that you would outgrow all of that peer pressure. And just, you know, you assume that when you get older. And it doesn't go anywhere, but it sometimes takes on a different name or a different form. And, um, I know that I'm stronger in my identity, so it doesn't have quite the pull that it does, but it, but I still get tripped up by um, the nasty peer pressure that we label as um, fear of missing out. Mm. Um, also can be called comparison. And this has long been a struggle for me. When I was little, my mom gave me a little uh, Mary Engelbright bright card. Do you remember Mary Engelbright? Bright colored pictures. Anyway, um, and it said, Bloom where you planted. And I stuck it on the mirror in the bathroom so that every time I brushed my teeth, I would remember to um, bloom where I was planted. Um, but my fear of missing out now seems to be living vicariously through my children. Um, like, if they don't get onto this team, or get into this class, or go to a certain camp, then they won't be able to get into a good college, run a company, and change the world. <laughs> I know it seems ridiculous, but that's how irrational that I can be when it comes to the fear of missing out. So recently I was reminded of the parable of the three servants in Matthew 25 that are given the different talents. So one is given five talents, another is given two talents, and then the third one is given one talent. And the first two were focused on their master and went out and invested and used their talents. Hmm. Uh, and they, they earned more. The third was focused on herself and maybe her family. Um, I mean, why not? I'm sure she wanted the best for her family. Uh, but she was also concerned, and concerned sometimes can uh, be disguised as worry beyond all get out. Um, we use that word so that we don't sound like we are um, ungodly. You know, I'm concerned about this. It sounds a whole lot better than I'm not trusting God. Uh, but she was concerned about what she would have to say for herself. So she put her talent aside. She put her talent on the back burner. And she made sure that her kids were properly dressed in all the activities that she and her family could possibly handle. And she got them into a college and made sure that they were established and well-contributing members of society. Mm. But when the master came back, he 
said to her, what did you do with the talent that I gave you? And she listed off her kid's resume. And he said, they have their own talents to use. What did you do with yours? Hmm. You know what the master doesn't say to her? He doesn't say, well done and good, good and faithful servant. And that's something that I truly have a fear of missing out on, is hmm. his comment to me of, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be, I want to be, I want to use those talents and invest them into the kingdom and not put them on the back burner um, because I'm putting my kids ahead of myself. I have my own, they have their own, and I just, that's just something that I need to remember. Uh, if you would, let's pray as we uh, dive into the message together. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Uh, thank you that uh, those are some good words uh, from her and, and from your word uh, to simply invest what you have given us. And so, Lord, open us up uh, as we hear more of your word this morning, as we engage you and as we engage each other. We pray this morning. Amen. So on the gorgeous cliffs of La Jolla Shores uh, stands one of the most beautiful, famous libraries in our country. Uh, this is the Theodore Seuss Geisel Library. And uh, I have a personal affection to this place. Uh, it stands on my alma mater where I went to school at UC San Diego. And uh, don't get me wrong, I try my best to stay out of this place. I tried not to study. I was trying to surf as much as I could and hang out with my friends as much as I could. But when I did choose to study and I was on campus, I remember going up to the seventh floor of this library, looking out across UCSD, and even at, in certain spots in the library, you could see out to the, the tip of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, maybe you caught the middle name of the library. It was Seuss. Uh, because Dr. Seuss has been one of the most influential people in all of the 20th century in children's literature, right? Uh, raise your hand if you can right now think of your favorite Dr. Seuss book growing up. Anyone can remember it? Yeah, I mean, there's so many to choose from, right? There's green eggs and ham, there's cat and hat, there's one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. There's the Christmas classic, The Grinch, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is my boy's hands-down favorite. And these are all fantastic works. There are so many other fantastic works. And as is the case, I think, with a lot of great writers, a lot of great creatives and artists, some of their lesser-known works can actually even be some of the most insightful. Uh, one of my favorites uh, is in my trusty Six for Seuss, which we read with their boys all the time, and it is a story called Yertle the Turtle. Maybe you have heard it. And uh, I believe that so much of Yertle the Turtle is truly prophetic. And, and what I mean by prophetic is I mean it describes the world and how it actually works. Like it describes how things actually work. And in so doing that, they then begin to act like a mirror helping us to see the world even more clearly. So I wish we had time to read the whole thing. We don't. Uh, but if you would, join me just a little bit for a short portion, because this story sets up the perfect scene for where we are headed this morning. All right? So, so dig with me here to your little turtle. It says, On the faraway island of Salamasana, your little turtle was king of the pond. A nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy, quite happy 
indeed. They were, until Ural, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. I'm ruler, said Ural, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I look down on my pond, but I can't look down on the places beyond. This throne that I sit on is too, too low down. It ought to be higher, he said with a frown. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be when a king, I'd be ruler of all I could see. So Yurul the Turtle King lifted his head, and Yurul the Turtle King gave a command. He ordered nine turtles to swim to his stone, and using these turtles, he built a new throne. He made each turtle stand on another's back, and he piled them up in the nine turtle stack, and then Yurul climbed up, he sat down on the pile. What a wonderful view he could see for a mile. Now, of course, Cyril keeps, uh, he's at peace for the moment, but of course he wants more, right? He wants to see more, and he wants to get higher and higher. And, and it's when Mac at the bottom of the stack says this, he starts to ache. Cyril responds, you stay in your place while I sit here and rule. My throne shall be higher, his royal voice thundered, so pile up more turtles, I want about two hundred. And the cycle continues and continues. Now, as we engage the life of Jesus this morning in stark contrast to these actions, to these ambitions, to these desires of King Uriel, uh, we see Jesus define his mission and his message by servanthood. That's what we're going to explore this morning, is the servanthood of Jesus. We are going to explore today the mission statement, if you go to the next slide for uh, If you would, we're going to explore in Mark chapter 10, you can go there. Uh, we're going to see Jesus' mission statement, and we're going to unlock the mission statement of Apprentices of those who are following Jesus. So Mark 10, and words are going to be on the screen as well. Turn over with me there to verse 32. It says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid, again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Now, so here's the setup. We've got two groups of people. We have the disciples. We have, this refers both to the closest 12, but also to a larger group of people. Both men and women who were tied to him relationally, who were following in his footsteps, who were taking on his teachings and had some connection with him. And then there's a second group identified simply those who follow, which is probably the unidentified, kind of ambiguous crowd, right? Maybe these are fans. Maybe they like Jesus. Maybe they've even seen a few miracles, but they're not sure about them, right? They're not fully in, and yet they're following him. Him in this moment. And note their posture, right? The narrator Mark tells us their posture. It says the disciples were astonished. And it says the followers were straight up afraid. Why? Because at this point in the life of Jesus, his greatest opposition all are in Jerusalem. And there were numerous groups of people who were trying to kill Jesus at this point. It is near the very end of his earthly ministry. And Jesus is going to press into this and actually confirm their emotional postures. Look at this, verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles or the Romans, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, many of us have been in this series together for the last 20-some weeks, and this is actually the third time that Jesus has said this very same thing. Both in Mark 8 and 9, and now in chapter 10, 
Jesus is teaching that he's going to die. So I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And he's on repeat here. And yet he also says, yes, I'm also going to rise again, right? So he's saying that each time, but each time they're not getting it. Right? The disciples are, uh, believe he's going to overthrow Rome. They believe he is the long-awaited-for Jewish Messiah. And in their mindset, they're looking for a political conquering king. Right? They are looking for a yurtle-the-turtle-type figure. And Jesus says yes and no to that. He says, yes, I am the Messiah. No, I have no ambitions for, uh, to take over Rome. That's not what I'm here to do. And so in that, on three separate occasions, he is telling them, I'm actually going to die. He's trying to reorient their understanding of the Messiah. But each time there's this ironic, even comical kind of thing that ensues. So Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise. They don't get it. They do something very offensive or in the opposite direction of Jesus. And then Jesus teaches others out of that. So get ready for a little foolishness. Here it comes. Verse 35. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, is that really fair? <laughs> right? I mean, this sounds like the beginning of a standard comedy routine. This sounds like a, a smart, slightly devious young toddler who wants all the cookies in the house. Like, no, you can't have whatever you want, right? Like, are they really doing that? This isn't an audacious question. Uh, my mind is really boggled that two out of the three closest people to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, so John and James in this situation, are asking such a question. I'm like, that is audacious. So let's see the motivation. It says in verse 36, Jesus plays along. What do you want me to do for you? Yeah. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now, there are two kind of possible thoughts of this. One, they're still operating out of this earthly Messiah, right? Like they're saying, look, we know you're going to take over Rome, and we'd like to be your top governors, right? We're not going to be on the top of the stack, but we'd like to be number one and two, right? So that's one potential, is they want your the turtles stack, right? They want their own power alongside him. Two, it is possible they could maybe have Jesus' eternal kingdom in mind as well. Right? They were uh, on top of a mountain with Jesus where he transfigured himself. He actually turned himself blindingly wide. The voice of the Father spoke. Crazy stuff happened. And so maybe they're drawing upon that experience and saying, man, Jesus is doing something truly supernatural, truly divine. But I'm far more persuaded towards the earthly understanding. Like, I think they just want a piece of Jesus' pie, if you will, right? I'm persuaded because they don't get the patterns of what it means to be a follower of Jesus again and again. And they really don't get it until after his death and after his resurrection. I think they are just power grabbing. And so as easy as it is to critique that, right? When I think of my own stuff, and I'm regularly convicted of the many times uh, when I'm praying or circumstantially, I, I like what I call, you know, the magic genie Jesus form of God, right? Where, where God is orbiting around my needs and my desires, and I'm at the center of things. And, and I believe in my heart of hearts, right? Like there's a posture, there's something in me that is like a girdle the turtle, right? That, that wants to build my own thing, whether it's money in my own account, whether it's greater control over life's circumstances. I think all of us have this inherent error the turtle in us. We all like to be the boss. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can't, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And so Jesus rebuffs the request. And he does let them know that, that uh, his baptism, well, he, he hints, and he's been teaching openly about it. His baptism is going to be suffering and sacrifice, right? And so he is telling them, yes, in the future you will end up dying on behalf of me. You will suffer and sacrifice, but it's a little bit down the road. In this moment, what's more fascinating and ironic is that Jesus' humility is leaning right up against the arrogance of James and John. It's not my place to grant such a request, he says. And it's kind of this, wait a minute, Jesus, what do you mean it's not your place? You're submitting, you're deferring, you're lowing yourself to who? Aren't you the Messiah, right? Aren't you the one who calmed the storm and, 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 and multiplied the loaves and bread? You did all these things before. What do you mean by that? And so the dust settles, literally. James and John probably stop walking as Jesus leads this crowd. He goes ahead and they kind of reassimilate with the rest of the pack of people. And then a commotion occurs. The scene shifts. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And so somehow the word has leads. And, and again, if you know the disciples, my, my guess is I, I think Peter was eavesdropping. Like the bold, brash Peter. As James and John like, ran up ahead, he said that Jesus was ahead. He might have ran up ahead, overhears, hears this audacious request, and goes like, look, do you, can you believe what those two brothers asked? And so he tells the other ten, someone does, we don't know, the word leaks somehow. And, and in any way, they are all very angry, they are indignant, they are enraged. And so they are at minimum a verbal altercation, and they could be on the verge of a physical one. And so Jesus breaks in for the powwow, and again, he is launching off of this leveragingness to teach about him and his kingdom, a life-altering understanding. Verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's saying, look, folks, it's back to your return. And I simply want to ask, has anything really changed? You know, this is one of the reasons why I follow Jesus. I, I'm convinced that this man's wisdom uh, is beyond this world, that it continues to be profound, and it continues to captivate us and tell us how the world actually works. You know, it's hard not to be paying attention, but if you are, and if you are paying attention to the political wheels spinning on both the right and the left right now, like it's a mess. Right? The amount of power grabbing and backstabbing and gossip and slander and foolishness and outrage, like it's unmeasurable, right? And it's both on the right and on the left. And it's simply how the world works, right? It's these vying interests that are then trying to power grab and bend the world toward their own ways. And so whatever your political interests tend to be or views tend to lean towards, Jesus says this to all his followers. He says, not so he cuts through this noise. And as he continues to teach, he paints this countercultural revolution of the kingdom of God. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this is the mini-climax of the Gospel of Mark. Like prior to the cross, this is the, the, the most important moment in the life of Jesus. He's been building to this statement. 
so in reverse order, we're going to dig out his mission statement and then kind of unlock ours as well. So he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. And Jesus is saying, if anyone did have the right, if anyone had the dignity, the power, the glory to define greatness by seizing control and then subjugating others to that control, it should be the Son of Man. But even me, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, Jesus said, but instead to serve. The key Greek word here is diakonos, and it simply means servant or to service. It's extremely straightforward. And how did Jesus serve? He served in every imaginable way. And it's not about a singular act, actually. It's about this whole life worldview that Jesus had and lived into that then culminated in the singular act, the ultimate act of surrender and servanthood, which was his death on the cross. And so Jesus served way before that in even stooping down to come to earth by becoming a person, what we call the incarnation, right? Jesus stepped out of the riches of heaven and into the broken mess we find ourselves. You can go to the next slide if you would. The unique heart of Christianity, unlike all other religions and worldviews, is a message that said God became weak. That the all-powerful creator chose to set aside aspects of his divine nature to then become weak and rescue humankind. Jesus also stooped down by stepping into material, material poverty. He was born into an otherwise unknown family in an otherwise unknown nook and cranny of the vast Roman Empire. And he was rather poor out of Bethlehem. Jesus then spent the vast majority of human experience in obscurity. Right? Like, we don't know tons about his upbringing and all that he did. What we know is that he was a carpenter, which in that area is most likely a stonemason under his dad, and, and, and in Nazareth. And then roughly at the age of 30-ish, he begins this public itinerant rabbi mission. Uh, and many nights, uh, other parts of his teaching said, hey, look, uh, often I stay out under the stars. Right? And, and so he was just, again, on the edges all the time. And then Jesus went to marginalized. The unclean, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and other sinners of the day. And it provokes a view and an understanding of holiness as light going into dark places, not running away from challenging situations. Jesus went to the margins to say God sees you and values you and loves you. And through Jesus, he's making a way back home. He very regularly taught, don't listen to the religious elite on the inside. They look great on the outside, but their insides are rotten. They've lost sight of God. They've made the temple, this building, this structure into an idol. And guess what? There is a new temple on the scene of human history. And again, it was Jesus. And those audacious, countercultural, prophetic words and proclamations got him mocked and beaten, shamed, and then ultimately killed. You see, Paul says it this way, this beautiful thing. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this is the good news, that Jesus would be willing to stoop down to humble and humiliate himself, to even pay the price of his own life 
so that you and I can be rescued and brought back into a relationship with him. It is the exchange Jesus names as the heartbeat of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. is to take on Jesus' holiness, purity, justice, perfection, and goodness, and to exchange our rebellion, our brokenness, our impurities, and sin for what he has done on our behalf. And this was the mission of the Messiah, and Jesus was the unique one to fulfill it. But here's what's fascinating. So Jesus says, this is what I've come to do. But he also calls followers with this correlation uh, and a call. If you follow me, then you're going to walk in my way. So what he says in 43, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The same exact word, diakonos, is used that Jesus used about himself. And he doubles down and says, if you want to be first, you must be the slave of all. Just an aside here, we want to be careful with that word slave, right? In America here, it should trigger our thoughts around racial and ethnic-based slavery. It should definitely bring that up. Slavery imposed based upon the color of one's own skin. That is not the lens that Jesus would want us to be thinking through here. Jesus is not encouraging us to submit to a racially unjust system of oppression. That is not what he is speaking of. Jesus instead is saying servanthood. This lifting up of others' needs, placing them above our own, is the way of Jesus. And is not out of some form of coercion or obligation that is extracted from us. It's actually a voluntary submitting of our lives unto him and then to others as well. And so it's very clear, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called into servanthood in the way of Jesus. But clearly there are lots of massive problems uh, in our culture and, and in the human heart. Uh, I love what Kirsch, a sociologist, says. He says this, much to our horror. We have discovered that consumerist middle-class sensibilities are built on the ideals of comfort and convenience. It's consumerism. And then safety and security, middle-class. Whether we choose it or not, almost all expressions of church in the West are implicitly vulnerable to non-discipleship, professionalized ministry, spiritual passivity, and Consumerism. These are hard words, right? We find ourselves in a suburban reality, uh, and the cultural waters we certainly swim in is comfort and convenience and safety and security, right? Like, I'm not pointing fingers. It's like those are loud voices in my life all the time, and they actually bend us away from the radical calls of Jesus to be the servant of all, to put everyone in front of ourselves. Uh, at serve, our greatest desire. We've been talking this out uh, with some regularity now. It's to commission and unleash over the next 10 years 500 or more intentional disciple makers. Like people who are learning to multiply and invest their lives in this servanthood reality. Who are listening to listen to God and to obey Him. How to make other disciples who learn how to make disciples. This is the plan that Jesus has for us. Has us on the hook. I love hearing Whitney's honest and real sharing of, boy, here's what I've been wrestling with in my life. Here's how God is, is moving in me and through me, and yet here's where I still have not arrived. This is some of that aspect of listening and obeying. And so again, if you're here and you're hearing that for the first time, that we want to unleash 500 or more disciple makers throughout uh, the country and throughout through, and through, sir. If you're hungry for those relationships, we want to know that. Like we want to hear from you because we are always looking for people to invest our lives into. So what is Jesus calling us to in this circuit? Can I name four crucial spheres for us as we kind of land the plane together? 
Rather than tell you, here's three points and here's how you serve, right? Like, I actually believe that God and His Spirit want to work that out with you. And so I want to stroke the imagine, your visual imaginations to put these spheres of relationships on your radar. So first, if you would, if you would with me, consider servanthood in your key relationships. Let me our first one. Is examine your key relationships. Our family... Our, our, our kids, our spouses, our closest friends, right? These key relationships, they should be the beneficiaries of, our, of the reality of us becoming more and more servant-hooded in our lives, right? They know the realness of our life. And uh, one of the things I can honestly say about my wife, I want to brag on her just a touch, is she really is probably the most servant-hearted person that I personally know. Uh, she can commonly lose herself from deferring uh, to our kids' needs and, and to my needs. You know, we're needy as spirits at times, right? We're needy in our household. So she steps up all the time, and, and Krista regularly engages and, and really puts them ahead of herself. Um, one thing I'm also really humbled by is Chris is the best listener I've ever known. If you've had an extended interaction with her, an extended conversation, she does not bulldoze or bully, and I dare you to ask her more questions about her than she will ask about you. Like she serves through this aspect of listening and caring. And so the first sphere of relationship is how are you doing as a servant in your own home, in your own network of closest relationships? Two, a second crucial sphere is our work and our vocation. Like crucial place that we serve the world. Uh, God has designed the flourishing of humans and the world through productive means and, and meaning productive work that we all have. Uh, and by the way, I use that word vocation because vocation often also includes things like stay-at-home full-time moms, right? That is a vocational pursuit and calling. So God has designed us, roughly speaking, out of that 168 hours a week that we are given, 40 to 50 of roughly speaking, are, are to be directed towards meaningful work, are stewarded to honor and glorify God. And, and so although our work is most often paid in, in most forms, uh, regardless of it's paid or not, this is a way in which we contribute to the common good of others. Mm. Right? We know it's good news to have a great real estate agent who helps you buy or sell a home. Like, it's good news. It's good news when children are, are educated well. Um, and that is great news to have teachers that care. It is good news to have water and electricity and meaningful word, uh, roads. And we can go on and on. Vocation is a really, really important way that we should be expressing our servitude in the world. So, has work become a drudgery? Right? Do you still have passion behind it? Uh, what are the common needs of your employer, your employees, your, your customers, whatever your current vocational context is? Do you spend time praying and thinking through your apprenticeship to Jesus and how that's then expressed through your vocation? Uh, there's so much to say around this. A couple of resources I'd love to point you at if this is like scratching an itch with you. Uh, I've always loved Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor. I think there's some great reading there. If you want to go to the next slide, just in case people want to rock this thing. So Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. And then also Find Your Place uh, by Rob Wagner and Brian Phipps. It's a really good exploratory read on just, man, uh, what are my gifts, what are my talents, how is this playing out in my vocation? So these are great resources. Buy them on Amazon, grab a buddy, schedule a few coffee dates, and start exploring some conversation around vocation. Third, uh, Jesus wants our servanthood to bless our neighbors. 
And that means, yes, literally like those people who live about 10 or 15 uh, feet away from your house, okay? I know oftentimes in suburban contexts, uh, the fences can be high. Uh, but in the early Jesus movement, uh, Jesus' followers were the best neighbors to their Roman and pagan friends and neighbors. They were living a truly countercultural life that was contagious. And pe people began to fall, uh, to begin to trust this Jesus in droves, in part, because of this. So the first step always is just simply, do you know your neighbors, right? It's a fair question. Do you know them? And, and then in that, uh, are you able to receive from them, like them actually meeting your needs, and you actually meeting their needs, so this mutual, reciprocal relationship <laughs> and serve one another. Uh, got word a couple months ago, a story from Jason, Morgan, and Julia. Uh, they hosted a cookie decorating party in their home, right? Real simple and, and fun, and a few people showed up, and one of the people who showed up and said they lived down the street, they had been there for 13 years, and it was the first neighborhood gathering, and the first time ever meeting neighbors. 13 years, right? Like, people are lonely. They're isolated. And one of the greatest forms of servanthood is to love, serve, to prayer walk your neighborhood, to ask God, like, what are you doing here in the real lives of my neighbors? How do I join you? And so I want to encourage you, spend some time, again, sitting in that and saying, what, what does God want me to do and be as a servant in this place? Finally, fourth sphere to consider is our personal worship before the Lord. And we land here because ultimately, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's the call to serve the one true king. Like, that's, that's what we're called into. And the first form of service is simply being with God and recognizing that God wants our time, wants relationship with us, that we're invited into that. And so in the very secret and hidden places of our homes, uh, whether it's kneeling in prayer or, or journaling or reading scripture or listening uh, to worship music or interceding on behalf of our neighbors and those, those networks of relationships we have, this is fundamental work of what it simply means to serve the king. And I really want to encourage you to take back the first hour of your morning. Uh, I don't know what you do with it, um, but I don't know if you know that 80% of people in our country, within 15 minutes of waking up, what do they do? Scroll a feed or read email within 15 minutes. And study after study, I'm, I'm totally fine with social media, I'm not bagging on that, but right out the gates, study after study shows a direct correlation. And when you do that in the first 15 minutes, uh, what happens is you have increased stress and anxiety because the overwhelming reality of the world will start coming crashing in on you. Um, it usually leads to increased rates of depression. Uh, and there are also just a hijacking of time and attention and increased distraction throughout the day. Like that regularly will happen when you go there first. And so I just want to encourage you, what does it look like to take back that first half hour, that first hour of the morning, to sit and be with God? To simply just receive His wondrous love over our lives. To start there, to be rooted there and connected there. So the turning point in your old turtle, <laughs> it's when Euro sees the moon and he becomes jealous that the moon stands above him. If you flip ahead with me, that's a great picture of Uriel looking up to the moon. And, and then he stacks underneath, the, the, the turtle's underneath him because he even wants to go higher. He sees the moon, and, and do you know what's, what topples his stack of turtles? It's a simple burp. At the bottom of the stack, one of the turtles burp. And the reality of our world is that it is so fragile. 
And that all of our worship, uh, all of us worship someone and something, and we all bow down uh, oftentimes to build our own kingdoms. And the prophetic reality of your the turtle that aligns with scripture is that all the turtle stacks that you and I construct, whether it's worship of self, money, popularity, power, sex, autonomy, whatever it is, they all come crashing down. And the difference is, is that Jesus says that he's actually better, but he's the Lord who stoops down to serve you. He's the only servant, the only Lord that empties everything and gives up everything. That when you serve him, he raises you up so that you might become a co-ruler with him. This is the servant gospel that Jesus invites us into. May it be so with us. Would you pray with me?